what we want to do is provide those people that are deselected with an encouraging message to keep them training, keep them engaged. So maybe we give a list of here's things that you did really well. Here's things that you actually need to work on. Um, that's much more motivating than, Hey, you know what? You didn't make the team this year. Well, no, we can, we can do, definitely do better than that. The other, the flip side of that coin is we also need to manage our athletes that are selected better because we're seeing evidence. And uh, this is mostly anecdotal through teams that we've worked with that there, there's a struggle with, um, athletes that are selected for junior national teams that stop striving because they think they've made it. They they haven't been able to make that transition from okay, you've made it through this gate, but now there's a now we need to get serious. Now you actually need to keep striving at a at a level you're not even used to. Hello there and a very warm welcome or welcome back to the podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. I'm an applied scientist and leader from the world of high performance sport. And on the podcast, I explore all aspects of human performance, whether that is getting stronger, fitter, mentally more prepared, eating better, playing better, leading and coaching in different ways, but also how we perform in work individually and as teams. And the way I do that is by speaking with great scientists, practitioners, researchers, coaches, athletes and entrepreneurs. I'm also keen to talk to people from outside of sports, people who are just interested in how we perform as humans. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do share it with friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe. And if you want to support and champion us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. This week's guest is Joe Baker. Now, Joe is a professor at the School of Kinesiology and Health Sciences at York University in Toronto. And Joe's work specializes in optimal human development, largely to try and understand how someone gets to and stays at the highest level of performance. And this means he works in the areas of skill acquisition, talent identification and athlete development. And he's recently written a book called The Tyranny of Talent, which pokes and probes around the ideas about what talent actually is, how it's typically thought about, worked with and developed or attempted to be developed in many elite environments. In this conversation, we explore what the pitfalls are, the pivot points and the priorities in supporting people all the way through their athletic, sporting and exercising journey. Joe is a true expert in the field and he brings an erudite wisdom to this discussion. But he's also active in helping others switch their mindsets to begin to think again about how we can develop people in the right ways. Well, Joe, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you? Yeah, really good. Really good. So it's a little bit earlier in the morning. So you're based in Toronto. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, just uh, I live an hour north of Toronto and uh, my uh, university's in Toronto. Ah, fantastic. I was over in Toronto in 1999 for the World Championships, Rowing World Championships with the team there yeah. uh, when it's in St. Catharines. So loved Loved that area. Enjoyed going to 
Algonquin Park and uh, and the surrounding area. Is that is that home for you? Is that uh, is that where you you're from? Yeah, it was. Um, I grew up just a little bit north of where I live now. Left in the late 1980s. Said I'll never be back. And uh, now I live uh, 20 minutes from where I grew up as a kid. So uh, yeah, it's strange where the world takes you. <laughs> so just for people who don't know you, could, would you would you mind just giving us a bit of a background? Uh, tell us a little bit about your your career, how it's developed, where you, what's led you to to today. Yeah, I'm uh, so I'm a, a professor at York University in uh, in Toronto, as you said, and um, my research focuses on how we can use sport to understand what um, individuals are capable of. And so uh, I'm an ex athlete, well, current athlete, hopefully, um, and uh, I've always been struck by how many, you know, uh, just basic questions around human function and human performance we can actually mirror in the world of sport and so i'm interested in sport because i'm an athlete and i love sport but i think sport goes beyond uh that and helps us understand what humans are capable of and so um we use that as a model of high performance athlete development talent identification forecasting all that kind of stuff but we have a separate arm of research that looks at sport for helping us understand what older adults are capable of. Because if you look at what older athletes are capable of doing, completely different um, spectrum from what the average older person is doing. And so um, we use older athletes as a kind of a model of, hey, this is what we should be aspiring to um, as we get older. And so it, it sounds like two separate uh, lines of research, but it's amazing the crossover that we see. Yeah, there's um, there a really inspiring conversation with Professor Daniel Lieberman from Harvard that, mm -hmm. that we had on the podcast not so long ago, but he was talking specifically about the, the how, how older tribesmen, tribeswomen, they are extraordinarily active right up until the end of life. And when that goes, it kind of really goes. But it also was one of the things that seems causative for longevity or quality of life, at least. Yeah, absolutely. Which which kind of um, raises the question how much of the decline that we see in the older adult population is just driven by the way that we've constructed society and the kind of messaging that we do to promote certain types of behaviors over other types. And if we just change that whole paradigm, we might see a lot of big social problems starting to solve themselves if we got people more active. Uh, and, I, you know, I would put sport out there as being one of those maybe best environments for activity because of the intensity, the social interaction, even the competition, I think, uh, position sport as a really unique um, endeavor that humans do that that has a lot of benefits. So, um, I don't want to ask you your age, Joe. That would be terribly impolite of a, of a British uh, person asking somebody their their age. But you've classed yourself as an athlete there, and um, and that's interesting in itself. Of of still, I suppose I suppose I fall into that habit of oh, I'm an ex athlete, I'm a mm. failed athlete, uh, and just that sense of I, I used to do that, I used to compete. Um, when actually I do kind of compete regularly on the bike with my friends for example yeah. well i'm competing they're not they're cruising but but that sense of of that 
I, I, I'm going for my sporting endeavor. I'm going to try and achieve. And then when you start to feel the sort of wane of athleticism and that ability to compete, that we almost declassify ourselves. Is that a deliberate act of, of calling yourself an athlete in that sense? I don't know that it's conscious in that sense. Um, I think it's, you know, it probably ties into, um, you know, perceptions of the self and um, just, uh, you know, uh, individual identity, that kind of thing. I, even in periods where I've taken time off from competition and I, I still considered myself an athlete, which is probably wired into my social identity at this point, because I was one for so long. And I think there's power in that, that, um, you know, any situation that even if it's been, you know, years since the last competition, the next one is, is, uh, foreseeable in the future. So, I think that positions your approach to behavior in a unique way that, yeah, it's, yeah, I might not be as fit as I was at the moment, but I know I can get that fitness back, which is an empowering message that I think if you haven't had that athlete mentality, it might be a little bit harder because of the perceived um, and actual psychological barriers that you might face. Mm. It um, it reminds me of a conversation I had a year, years ago now with colleagues and professors in uh, in New Zealand. I don't know whether this effect is still there, but but they were talking about how um, they've noticed that they struggle to get uh, referees for netball, mm. primarily because rather than sort of compete in netball, retire, then maybe do some refereeing, that that so many women. We're continuing to compete and compete and compete. And no one wants to take that sort of step back to yeah. referee, which is a, I suppose, a very cultural thing, but it has to have a system that allows people to continue to do that and for it to still be relevant. And I think the the bigger issue is the undervaluing of referees as a position in the sport sort of ecosystem. Uh, you know, the athletes are at the top, absolutely. And then coaches are, you know, the elite coaches are near the top. Uh, referees and officials are so far down that list in terms of social value. And the lack of recognition that without the officials and the referees, there is no system, there is no game. Um, I, I think we've got some colleagues here in Canada that are doing a lot of work on the developing a pathway for officials and referees, which I think is a really important contribution to the way that we think about sport. Yeah. So, so listen, I'd love to talk to you about your book, Tyranny of Talent. Um, so could tell me a little bit about the motivations behind writing it. It was something that I'd, uh, it's been, you know, one of these uh, projects that's been in the back of my mind for, for years now. And then with the COVID and the lockdowns that we had in Canada, I had an opportunity to just have some focused time to sit down and write and, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, to get some ideas down on paper. Um, because like, I think a lot of researchers experience this, that sometimes the ideas that we work with are too complicated to get out in a journal article or a single, um, you know, short, um, scientific publication. And so that's what I was able to do in the, the tyranny of talent is just unpack a lot of the stuff that relates to this idea of talent and, um, where it came from in our research program was for about 10 years, we we were deliberate practice uh, researchers. We looked at quality of training environments, 
How do we quantify the amount and type of training that athletes need across their development in order to make it to the high performance level? Uh, really focused on the, the quality and quantity of, of engagement. And what we were finding was when we talked to coaches and systems, we were always banging up against this concept of talent. And so our goal was um, not to go around that idea, but to go through it. And so it was interesting when we started to unpack this idea of talent that it's this nebulous kind of vague term that everybody uses, but nobody really uses it in the same way. And so um, the book, uh, what I wanted to do was go right back to the very beginnings of that term. Why did we start using it all the way back to Francis Galton and the nature versus nurture dichotomy, which surprisingly set us off uh, on the wrong foot right from the beginning in terms of how we frame that that argument and and whether we're talking about educational attainment or science or art or or sport the idea that we can nicely split people into this is nature this is nurture and and have arguments you know cohesive arguments about which one is more important is uh, part of the problem. The The idea and the overwhelming scientific evidence is that we're always a combination of both of those things and trying to split them into component parts is, a, is, is futile. And so that was really what I was trying to do in the book is just to capture how complicated and sophisticated it is when we think about talent in sport, because, and the book is written for coaches and practitioners and parents, um, I think we underappreciate how complicated it is to produce uh, an elite athlete. And so why did you call it the tyranny of talent? And I'd love to hear any any other names that you were go you were considering, <laughs> but ended up arguing. What is it? I'm, I'm interested in, in the, the specific choice of the word tyranny. It's it's a it's tyrannical in the sense that um, it's everywhere and it affects the way that coaches, parents, and the system think about athlete development. This idea that we need to stream athletes early on in their development, or else they're going to miss opportunities. Well, that's a that's a talent based view. It's it's based on the idea that we can look at somebody at u7 u9 or whatever and say you know you're you're a perfect football player or you're a perfect um a handball player or volleyball or, or runner or whatever imagine if we tried to do that in the education system where we took um you know a, a grade fives or whatever and said no you're a you're going to be a physician you're going to be a scientist you're going to be a garbage collector we don't do that in any other domain, but we think it's okay in sport. And one of the reasons we do that is because the way that we've thought about sport and the the, the hold over sport that this idea of talent has, has become tyrannical. It's Sometimes it's really explicit in the way that we design athlete development systems with a focus on early engagement instead of you know, wh why couldn't we have people engage in the system later? If if talent wasn't an important element, then we would let people engage with the system wherever it was most appropriate. 
we also see it implicitly in the way that talent, uh, the way that parents and coaches um, work with their athletes when they look for natural talent. When we see things like relative age effects, um, what we're seeing there is a manifestation of an implicit belief that talent is something that's uh, identifiable that I can I can find, maybe that no one else can find, but I can. Uh, and these kind of viewpoints are everywhere in sport. Mm. And why do you think that is? Uh, Is it so emotive and uh, driven by competition that we're not making logical decisions or financial economic decisions about where we invest our money or talent or or our, our efforts? Yeah. And this is one of the things that I go into in the book is just how many different, you know, it's almost like a perfect storm of um, problems in sport at the moment, because we have a, in a lot of countries in the world, we have a resource limited system that, um, that faces real barriers when um, we have, let's say we have 50 kids uh, that want to stay in the system, but we have 10 spots. Uh, That's not because um, of funding, but oftentimes it's because of coaching. It's because of facilities. We just don't have the space or the expertise to keep all those people. That's a resource limitation. Um, It's a different resource limitation than other countries face. I was in Singapore a couple of weeks ago, and um, it's interesting that the, the resource limitation there is people. Uh, and so it's interesting that these systems have different resource limitations, but the resource limitation seems to be the universal. So that's a system-based problem that we have. We also have coaches that are, you know, human beings with the same kind of flawed human brain that the rest of us have. And so they're uh, prone to um, cognitive biases like confirmation effects and availability effects. Uh, and so the way that they actually select when they're forced to make a selection has consequences uh, and has uh, inaccuracies. The problem with that is the earlier we get in the time that we make these selections and the reality that when you make a selection, you take some kids that get greater access to resources like better training, better competitors, better coaches. Well, those are actually the difference makers in uh, long-term success. <clears throat> Going all the way back to our research on quality of practice, quality of practice is the most powerful predictor we have of development. And so if you limit a person's engagement, especially early in the system, by providing some opportunities to a minority and not to the rest, you're increasing the likelihood that that minority is going to uh, develop in a better environment. Mm. I, I struck by the the statement in your book about no size fits all. Mm. And I remember a conversation, uh, I think it was a few years ago at INSEP at the Institute of Sport in France. And, um, and I was talking about developing models of performance. So you had a reference point, you had these, these things are important. These are predictive. These are determinants of performance, but the devil's in the detail. This person's got this strength slightly higher, be uh, tuned, this one's slightly lower. And therefore that performance profile offers you an opportunity to say, you guys over there, you should be doing this and you guys over there should be doing that. And you, you're completely different. You should be doing something different. And that doesn't always work if you're trying to run team practice or mm-hmm. you're in a boat or the, the you know, you've got, uh, you've got a peloton to run. But 
that no size fits all. Um, so the question was from the, the conference was, um, why do you do that? Why don't you just have a generic program that everyone does? Yeah. And I said, we haven't got the talent pool to waste in Britain. <laughs> we just, right. we've just got to nurture it. We've got to try and find how can we get you to the best place possible as opposed to there's the program, everyone lock in, off you go. Well, I think that's a perfect example of why I called that chapter No Size Fits All, because mm -hmm. I think there's differences between individuals even within a sport, which is what you're seeing in that rowing example. But also the, you know, the reality that rowing has to have a different approach to athlete development than football does or ice hockey in Canada. You know, we can we can burn out a high degree of players at the early level because there's always more players behind them, which means we can have a system that's effective but not very efficient. In sports where you have fewer athletes, you have to have both. You have to have an effective system, but also one that efficiently manages those fewer athletes. Because if you don't, you're going to run out of what is the most important resource, which is people. Yeah. This, so, I mean, that, that in itself of the two uh, parameters of assessing effectiveness versus efficiency, um, I'm, I'm still thinking just about how people spend their lives when they're coaching that if it is inefficient that's just not good use of their their coaching time surely it could be smarter in the way that people are i suppose at the very least the most basic principles more open to different approaches different routes different contributions um you give that example in the book of Leicester City and an academy player almost rocking up to the wrong training uh, pitch and, and getting a go with the first team and excelling, um, that's, that's a chance example which probably punctuates this idea of why not take different approaches rather than just one route to the top of the mountain. Which I think is an important point. And, um, you know, I think we're really who are at understanding the role of randomness and chance and just luck uh, in, in the athlete development pathway. We, you know, we think that coaches have perfect predictive abilities and ultimate control over the athlete development. And sometimes it's just luck being in the right place at the right time. And one of the things that we try to do, you know, in this book, but also in the discussions that we have with coaches is to, is to get them to buy into that argument that, hey, you know what, sometimes you're going to be right, more times you're going to be wrong, and provide yourself with a system that's going to be flexible enough for those things to not impact the likelihood of some talented athlete achieving their potential. And it's interesting because we come into coaches' uh, discussions with coaches and we provide this you know, the first half of our discussion is really a doom and gloom kind of scenario that we talk about the scientific evidence that that's not there. We, the scientists, uh, and I include myself in this group, we haven't provided much evidence-based uh, recommendations for coaches so that they can improve what they do. And the data that we have on the accuracy of early forecasting is that it's so bad that we should avoid it at all costs. 
And so it's a really sort of, you'd look at it and say negative uh, perspective that we give to coaches. And it's surprising because a lot of people ask me, you know, do coaches sort of check out and, you know, um, and just get aggressive at that point. And none of them do. None of them ever have because it provides them with a bit of license to now, you know, embrace something that they already know. What they do is a really difficult job. Most of them are not comfortable doing it. And if they were able to say, you know what, I'm, I'm not comfortable here. I don't know that I'm correct in the way that I'm assessing this athlete. And so I'm going to treat them a little bit differently. We would design a different system for nurturing athlete development. If that was our focus, if we, if we embrace the idea, which I think is quite evidence-based, you're more likely to be wrong in your early selections than you are to be right. We would change the way that we designed our system, but our system is uh, isn't designed that way. Mm. And what's interesting here is that I think for a lot of scientific research, certainly as an applied scientist, I would look at it with a different lens to the way that uh, uh, probably a fundamental researcher would do. I would be looking for the standard deviation as opposed to the mean. I would be looking. It looks like you've got responders and you've got non-responders to that intervention. That's interesting. That I wonder how we could get more people to the responder and think about mechanistically how we might get them there. Um, and so that's taking more of an individualized approach to enhance a cohort where, where here you can take cohort-based approaches, can't you really? Because you are looking for a pool of talent. You are looking for groups of people that can can flood your system with with excellence yeah and i think the you know the the interesting thing about that perspective is um that you know we can use those benchmarks uh for assessing individual performance relative to a cohort and and i think we're starting to see this emerge in a lot of sports you know rowing is a great example because the performance is pretty objective it's pretty you know the the type of rowing doesn't change. The environment stays roughly the same. So we can benchmark performance. We can do that in speed skating. We can do that in swimming. And it's interesting when we engage with coaches, they spend more time focusing on the area above the mean than they do on the area below. And so for us, the more interesting question is not how good uh, do you need to be at a U11 or U13, but how bad could you be at a yeah, U11 interesting, yeah. and stay and still emerge as an elite performer later on? For me, that question is much more interesting because it speaks to, well, how was that person able to survive in a system that should have deselected them if, if the only thing they're focusing on is performance? Mm. And so I can remember the vividly the first days that I met somebody aged 18, 19, 20. And I thought I'm in the presence of talent. I know this. And I can remember those days for people that went on to win Olympic gold medals. I can remember thinking, wow, that, that person has got it. But equally, I can remember the experience and the journey and the frustration of thinking that way, this person has got it, but it didn't manifest. It didn't work out. And is that a, is that an area of research that is available these days about rather than a sort of 
having the sort of hindsight bias of all oh, that person made it to the top and therefore they they ate frosties for breakfast so that must be the thing is it is there a sense of understanding what do we what can we learn from those people who don't make it but were identified as as talented it's a it's really emerging as a, a key area of research at the moment i would say we don't know very much about that group um because they're hard to access uh, mm. we know that they're probably the norm is to is to disengage from the system because there's so many ways that athlete development can go wrong uh compared to right there's so many things that that we can mess up in the long-term development of an athlete uh, and so we know that the norm, and even just from the proportions of athletes at different stages of development, we know that the majority of them are deselected from the system. So we're just starting uh, to to do more re uh, research in that area. I think the um, there's a couple groups in the UK. We're certainly doing it in Canada. There are some researchers in Australia, New Zealand that are um, focusing on this question. So I would. I, I think the the limitation for us there is always going to be accessing those athletes because um, once they're deselected from the system, they've kind of moved on and, you know, whatever their life is going to become, they're not really that interested in engaging uh, in the research process, even if we can access them. Mm. I, I can give you a list of names, Joe. <laughs> that'll, be, uh, that'll be a starter for ten. But well, you know what? It would be we we uh, we laugh about it, but like the that is the critical thing is it's going to be gatekeepers that can allow us access yeah. to those people because they really are the most important people in the equation of athlete development. Is you were on the same trajectory as this person and didn't end up at the same place? Why not? We have nobody that can speak to that. Why not question at the moment? Yeah, and and it's interesting just reflecting over the years about the stories that guests get consistently told about why not, and yeah. I can remember meeting one young lad, and you know the guy who had springs, he and we all just said this guy can break the world long jump record. Yeah, he just couldn't be bothered, just couldn't be bothered, yeah. and you know, we no spark of sense of of competitiveness in the same way that. Um, uh, I remember meeting, uh, it's a different generation now, but before my time, a guy who won the British cycling championships without much training, um, at, but just, again, didn't have that ruthlessness of competition. I don't really like competing. And mm. it was almost too nice. And so it, there were little, little characteristics there, as well as the, the, the athlete who just kept breaking down with injury that we couldn't quite get her fit, for example. Lots of a multitude of factors that that you could probably pinpoint a few at least that that were reasons why they didn't make it to the top as well as those that around the environment i presume too yeah and i think that's the you know the the push and pull between the art and the science of coaching right the science would say hey there's some universals that we need to see at different points in time in athlete development and this coaches hey be on the lookout for these universal uh benchmarks but the reality is there's a lot of individual variability across when those benchmarks emerge, what they look like. You know, you've hit on uh, some of the high points, which is it doesn't matter if you've got all the talent in the world, but no motivation and no interest, then, you know, there's only so much you can do with that athlete. And, and I think that's the thing that we're struggling with at the moment. And one of the reasons why I emphasize in those latter chapters of the book that, 
we need to move away from this single pathway uh, approach, single approach to coaching. No, there's there's individual variability here. That athlete with all the talent in the world that just wasn't motivated to uh, compete, it, was there something we could have done earlier in their development to try to increase the likelihood of that drive emerging? Or, did, or is it just not there and never will be? Um, to get to those kinds of sophisticated questions, we need to be thinking about athlete development more from an individual-centered than a system-centered uh, approach. So can I ask you about the, the concept that you um, highlight? So talent is real. Yeah. Um, is that a specific challenge or rebuttal to the Ericsson model? If you put enough practice in, you'll probably get there or um, you'll get to the top. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's really um it's really unfortunate that Anders passed away when he did because uh, him and I had just started to unpack some of these mm. things. We were lucky enough to spend a week together in Israel the um, a year before he died. And I presented the talent view and he presented the deliberate practice view. And, and we came to a place where they weren't actually adversarial in the way that, uh, that they were being used. And I think, I don't want to put words in Anders's mouth, but I think he didn't say talent didn't exist as much as he thought it was irrelevant to understanding athlete development, that um, people with talent would be the ones that were there to do the deliberate practice. They were the ones that were um, going to be in the system. And so from a predictive standpoint, the group would be relatively homogeneous for talent. Uh, that would be the, the, so it wouldn't have any predictive value. Um. For me, I think the argument that talent is real uh, is pretty solid and robust because otherwise you have to say everybody's equally likely to have um, achievement in any domain. You could pick the domain at random, put somebody in it and have them do enough deliberate practice that they could emerge as a, a genius or a superstar. I don't think anybody argues that. And it's a, a it's quite a straw man argument to set that up. Um the differences between people, whether those are physical, I think the the heritability estimates for almost every psychological variable we have shows high heritability as well. Um, so almost every variable we're interested in, in terms of athlete development, has some kind of heritability associated with it. And so when I talk about talent being real, that's what I'm talking about, is the population-based differences between people that go back to their raw genetic material that doesn't mean that talent is the only thing. It doesn't mean that there's one fixed profile with talent at the beginning that's going to, you know, spread out and eventually lead to expert performance. No, that's it's it's just stating that there are differences between individuals that affect their likelihood of success. So that's the that's a very research sort of theory based conceptualization of talent. My argument for coaches is to forget about talent. Uh, in almost any situation, forget about talent because it has too much baggage as a word. You're, if you believe you you see talent, you're probably wrong. Your forecasts of of talent identification are are very inaccurate. And so, for practitioners, I think it does more harm than good. But as a theoretical concept, I think there's um, there's some strength to that idea. 
so could you just lean into that phrase? So if you see talent, you're probably wrong. Is is is, is that just are you, are you just trying to pro- be provocative there in terms of just that sense of um, what our our preconceived ideas are? Are uh, we're mapping or projecting our own thoughts and images of what we think are successful? or the highlight moments that we're remembering that we're imprinting on somebody else's performances. And um, I'm keen to, to just expand that one a little bit for coaches who do listen, um, <laughs> because that's quite, that's quite tricky for them to do, isn't it? <laughs> it is, but it's um, – so the way we look at it is when you think about talent as being something that can be identified, and particularly early in the pathway – you treat your athletes different than if you thought it was something that needed to be nurtured and developed and put in the right environment. Uh, You know, seeds don't become plants because they're planted. They become plants because of the environment that they're put into. And that's the way that we need to be thinking about athletes is, you know, whether there's talent or no talent, I can design an environment that can optimize the development and the experience of all the athletes under my care. That's the approach to coaching that we're trying to emphasize, not to sort of dismiss the idea of talent altogether, but just when you think you see it, particularly early in development, you think about athletes in a more fixed capacity than we want you to be thinking about them. And the reason we say that you're probably wrong is because of the pervasiveness of things like relative age effects, um, the, the socioeconomic status effects, geographic effects, these kinds of things that we see that pervade across the athlete development system that we see at the end, but are probably uh, operating at the beginning. Um, you know, when everybody equalizes in terms of biological maturation and growth, the relative age effect doesn't go away because the selections that coaches do early on uh, continue to exist in that system. Uh, okay. So am I, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a, there was a section in the book, uh, it was fairly early on about potential and, and we see potential, but that can be amplified or held back by the sociological, um, environmental, um, the size of the, the, the town that you live in, the economic background you're from, those advantages and disadvantages that can amplify or reduce your chances of realizing that potential. Is that, is that the same concept you're touching on here? Yeah, exactly. That's okay. so it, that's in the chapter on Matthew effects, which is the idea that, you know, even in Erickson's early work on deliberate practice, he emphasized the power of resourcing um, for an athlete. The athletes that get more resources that have more resources, those, you know, more money, more support, more encouragement, all that kind of thing. Those are resources that affect the quality of a person's learning. Uh, and that applies across almost any learning environment, particularly in sport, though, because of how powerful instruction can be uh, early in development. Mm. I often often say Usain Bolt is is probably not the fastest person in the world. He's the fastest person who's competed in sprinting in the world. (laughs) He's He's just the one who's done it, who's got that talent. But is there going to be somebody who's faster? Probably. 
Yeah, I think that's you know, uh, if you were to put if you were a betting uh, person, you would say yeah, definitely because that's the story of human performance is the the barrier always gets broken by someone. The more interesting question is how long will it take? Uh, how big of a paradigm shift was Usain Bolt? Hmm. Uh, but I think you're right. It's if we started thinking about him being the the fastest person that was allowed to develop in a high performance system that we eventually saw emerge in an in international competition that that's the way we need to be thinking about the complexity of athlete development the greatest hockey player in the world could be living in australia right now but we'll never find them because they don't have a system that allows that person to emerge and so the the table that has done the rounds on social media, uh, page 14, odds of making it youth to professional Olympic level. Um, and that's, um, that's an interesting table. I think immediately there's a little bit of a reaction to it of, oh, that's terrible. Uh, so few people get through. Um, and what's your sort of interpretation of that? Because it's, I think you can read it in several different ways, can't you? That's just reality. That's the cold yeah. logic facts of where we're at at the moment with these systems versus, oh, that's that's brutal for kids as an experiential emotional. What's your interpretation of those those odds? And, and so to trying. put that into context, it's professional basketball, professional yeah. football, baseball, and ice hockey, and you've got youth, high school in the next column, college drafted, playing at the top level and then those odds, the probability of you getting through and it's what well, professional basketball is probably the harsh, harshest, isn't it? One in 71,000. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I, I put that there to be a little bit provocative because it sets up the, the rest of the discussion that we have in that book, particularly the chapter on um, accuracy versus striving, because we have a tendency to look at those numbers and see the one in 70,000. And at the moment, we're just trying to quantify what's the value of the other 69,999 people. They don't have no value, but we focus on that individual athlete that emerges at the end of the pathway as being the reason for the pathway. What we think, and this is the element that we're trying to quantify at the moment, is that for every person that emerges at the end of the pathway, there's thousands, if not tens of thousands of people that promote that individual's development. And so, you know, these are not, you know, the most direct example is the players that they compete against that help them develop their skill. We take those people away, the skill doesn't develop. They're, they don't develop in a vacuum. This is a, this is a social activity that's occurring. There's parents, there's coaches, like we mentioned before, there's officials, there's administrators. All of these people need to be in the system in order for that one person to emerge. And so, it was a little provocative to plant that at the beginning of the book because I knew people would see that and they'd focus on one in 70,000. And I don't know that I did it well enough, but we come back to that issue in one of the last chapters where we talk about the importance of striving. We don't want to get that good at talent identification because if I could tell you at seven or eight years old, forget about the NBA, it's not going to happen for you. You're not the one in 70,000. 
Why would you keep practicing? Why would you keep striving? Uh, and we need you to do that. We need you to believe that you're going to the NBA till the last possible moment, because every person that goes to the NBA needs you in the system to compete against, to strive against. Mm. And my question also is, is about, I suppose, are the leftovers is the wrong word, isn't it? The, 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 the people who don't make the, the top rung, but were probably striving towards it, are they healthier as a consequence of the experience? And I think that they're, this, this is sort of the, the attrition rate that, that sort of goes around quite as a popular statistic. But ultimately, my sense is, are we looking after those people during that time? And, you know, I often hear this on the podcast when I talk to elite performers, and maybe this is retrospective view, but they often say, I didn't have a plan B. I didn't have a plan B. As soon as I started thinking about a plan B, I was less committed to the plan A. <laughs> and and that in itself, I, I, I buy into that. I get that of full commitment, full approach. Um, but for those people who don't realize plan A's achievements, now they're, they're thinking, what do I do now? You know, I used to be that and I didn't quite. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's that pull of supporting people to have a healthy life so that they've got the skills and the attributes and maybe even, I don't know, business startup support so that they can survive if they're not on the back of a Wheaties packet and, and so on. But equally that they have a, a good thorough experience during their, their their developmental path there's a lot of um there's a lot of stuff there there's um you know i think the emerging research and especially in the field of positive youth development would say that um the engagement that anybody gets in any form of sport will have some kind of positive implications i think you know the for me the more critical question is how do we how do we help them with their transition out of the high performance sport pathway to increase the likelihood of that positive outcome occurring some of the work that's come out of the UK even in the academy systems in football which are maybe the most intensive pressure cooker that we have for athlete development those kids that come that are deselected from the system report almost you know, overwhelmingly positive experiences. And so, you know, it's not all doom and gloom, um, but can we increase the likelihood of everybody experiencing that? You know, for me, I think the interesting question is, as people move further into the pathway and more of their identity as a person, particularly in adolescence and late adolescence, where we start to see perceptions of self become more stable, I suspect that that's a more damaging place to be deselected from um, because so much of your life and experience up until that point has been tied up into being a high performance athlete. You know, think of the people that are just on the bubble of making it to a, a senior national team only to be told, you know what, you're actually not as good a football player or a rower as you thought you were. And this, this avenue is now closed. That's got to be devastating. I don't know that we understand how devastating and how to manage that um, that yet. But you know, because I think we don't appreciate how sophisticated the psychological gymnastics are um, as people move through that pathway. 
Mm. And so how do people, you know, if you were talking to talent managers at a Premier League academy or um, high school, college basketball, if you're talking to those people, how would you frame it so that they potentially could be competitive, ruthless, but also empathic, compassionate? It's a good question. Um, I think what I would do is encourage uh, pathway managers and coaches to have better conversations with their athletes, regardless of whether they're selected or deselected. The deselected because those are the ones that are at maybe at greatest risk of uh, negative experience. So, you know, if we couple that with the reality that our perceptions are more or less accurate than we would like them to be, then what we want to do is provide those people that are deselected with an encouraging message to keep them training, keep them engaged. So maybe we give a list of here's things that you did really well. Here's things that you actually need to work on. Um, that's much more motivating than, Hey, you know what? You didn't make the team this year. Well, no, we can, we can do, definitely do better than that. The other, the flip side of that coin is we also need to manage our athletes that are selected better because we're seeing evidence. And uh, this is mostly anecdotal through teams that we've worked with that there, there's a struggle with, um, athletes that are selected for junior national teams that stop striving because they think they've made it. They, they haven't been able to make that transition from, okay, you've made it through this gate, but now there's a, now we need to get serious. Now you actually need to keep striving at a, at a level you're not even used to. We don't understand that psychology very well either and maybe it's the selfish and the ruthless ones that emerge at the end of the pathway because those are the only ones that make that transition uh because they they were wired um that way from the start oh that, that's super fascinating and i think that that having worked in different types of sporting environments ones where perhaps diligence is diligence perhaps maybe slightly slightly low confidence and therefore hunger some of these drivers that that are absolutely essential from the start and must persist um particularly hard-working olympic sports where effort correlates with with return that sense of i've trained more I've got fitter and therefore I race faster though those sports versus perhaps some of the technical sports where spatial awareness, uh, kinesthetic capability, motor skill and learning adaptability that perhaps might not necessarily be down to structure and practice. Um, you can get a long way in a sport before diligence finds you out. <laughs> um, that, that, you're good, but that's the next level for you to go to world-class, world-leading. Um, that's a fascinating, fascinating area that I still get my, try and get my head around when I encounter low diligence in an elite athlete. I just think, how did you get here? Yeah. It must just be a gift. 
Well, I think that's the reality as well is that they're, and again, emphasizing this idea that talent is a real thing because we see this variability. We see this variability in the pathways. Some people are able to get to a fairly high standard with almost minimal effort and minimal engagement, um, no sacrifice in terms of social lives and the things they do outside the pitch and and the gym. Uh, And other people are head down, you know, multiple years of hard work, sacrifice, diligence, like you said, and they end up in the same place. Uh, And so if we see that variability in the pathway, then, you know, we have no alternative than talent is real, but it's not everything, obviously, because people have ended up in the same place through different pathways, one with talent, one with less, or at least talent manifested in a different way. Mm. That's again, that sophistication, I think is a better capture of, of what we're seeing in athlete development, uh, which goes against this idea of single pathway models, uh, single models that go across multiple sports, um, the same focus across stages of development none of those things make sense based on the variability that we see. And I'm struck by a phrase that James Cracknell, uh, two-time Olympic uh, champion in rowing, he he said that we'll do, we'll do things that require no talent to an exceptional level. And that, that sense of, of conscientiousness and preparedness. Um, the, 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 the people who have, amazing talents but no hard work they make a ru- they make for a rubbish story um everyone's pulling their hair out whereas the the people who didn't have the talent or have, have chipped away and been wily about the the approach and that's that seems to come out as um as a variable certainly in the serial olympic gold medalist study of tenacity of well, I started in that sport, but I perhaps wasn't as as competitive, and so I've switched and I've switched again. I think it was the th- the serial gold medalists were th- third sports. It was their third sport that they landed on before they they really locked in, uh, and that that tenacity seems to be um, certainly from a a research in that very gilded group. Um, a, a characteristic that would that would map to success i think in our view we would say um you know we need to we need to be adding those characteristics tenacity resilience uh persistence into our uh, discussions about talent most of the times when we think about talent we use physical um indicators the growth the speed at which they acquire skills the absolute size of their engine, whatever it is, but a person's ability to persist and just do years of training, hard training, sacrifice, that's a psychological variable that could be the best indicator we have of a person's talent. If we think about the value of hard work and quality practice and, you know, just putting your head down and, um, and sacrificing, well, that, that actually could be talent because we know that there are some people that are wired for that mundane high-performance lifestyle where every day is similar to the last, where you've got to focus on how you're going to recover after that training stimulus so you don't just go out with your friends. That 
embracing that mundane lifestyle could be our best indicator that we have of talent, but it's rarely mentioned in the conversations. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I remember trying to make certain training sessions interesting for athletes and and some of the best athletes said, I don't need this to be interesting. I'll just get on with it. I, I have a way of disconnecting and just getting through the work. And God, I, I do often think, yeah, that's not me. I need to try and make things interesting because, because of the way I'm wired, but you're yeah. not wired in the same way as me. Is this not something that is in, is much more prevalent in the talent research, the talent area, um, that we're respecting that, that persistence, that, that love for the sport, that you hear stories about Maradona or Messi or Paul Gascoigne who continually practice. They, mm -hmm. they can't take the ball off them. They're, they're in the, in the out in the playground out in the streets out in the they're inside kicking the ball about that that is a that is a requirement almost yeah and kobe bryant is another example of that like the stories of him just being in the gym doing mind-numbingly boring tasks uh, that would help him you know be, become a better performer i think the and again, this is a um, long way from being resolved, but I think part of the way that we frame the question when we think about those athletes is how did the environment promote that type of engagement? I think the alternative explanation is that engagement was going to be there from the starting point. That was the person whose personality is wired to enjoy those types of tasks Otherwise, you assume everybody enjoys all of the same kinds of tasks to the same extent, and the environment is the reason why we see some people persist and other people don't. I think that's a flawed argument right from the start. If we were to go back to the talent argument, we would say some pe people are going to be wired to enjoy different things, and certain people are going to be wired to enjoy the mind-numbingly boring practice that we see in high-performance athletes. That could be a manifestation of this one element of this thing we're calling talent. Mm. And so you've given me some some clues. If you were sat in front of a coach, co group of coaches, you've given me some clues as to what the the first phase would look like. There's a bit of a reset. Look, there's not a lot of evidence here. Um, when it comes down to right, we've got a limited time, amount of time together, but I would. I'd love you to start adopting a different approach, different mindset that could give you more results, give you more ultimately talent that can be exceptional as you've, as you've defined it. Um, what are the top tips? I'm conscious that this, this could be a very simplistic approach, but what are your top tips to, to enable people that they can take away from this conversation? Normally where we start is, um, and the reason why we most of our discussions are framed the first half with this sort of doom and gloom uh, story is because the second half is op is about opportunity that the, mm -hmm. there's no bit, there's no system on the planet that is doing this perfectly. And so if you can figure out how to do it better, then you've got an you've got an opportunity to gain advantage over your um, competitors. And the way that we frame that argument is, um, 
try to get a little bit better in everything that you do. Uh, can you measure your variables more validly and reliably? Can you design models of the uh, of your athlete profile that are more comprehensive, that are focused not just on physical indicators, but on psychological uh, variables? Because we know that the the proportion and value of those things changes across development that in early development technical skill and physical characteristics might be more important than they are later and so if you've got people that are going to demonstrate potential for psychological dominance later in the pathway how do we figure out a way to keep those people we do that by developing better models and develop and understanding how those variables change across development and so we have this whole approach where we increase the sophistication of the way that we think about athlete development and almost everything from how we measure variables to how we consider what those variables mean in our athlete development models the other element that we do is we try to convince them to have better conversations with their athletes when they have to make selection decisions and to not look at these as binaries uh, that you either have talent or you don't and and so the reason that getting them to understand how poor their predictions are right at the beginning is because we want them to try to manage those predictions with their athletes better by having better conversations, by decreasing the impact of that selection on an athlete. The perfect scenario was for me to say to an athlete, sorry, you didn't make the team this year. You know, we had 12 characteristics. You met seven of them. Here's the five where you were low. Here are the things that I want you to work on. And the next day it have zero impact on their interest in their sport and their type of engagement. That's the scenario that we're hoping for because we we know that these selections can be impactful in an athlete's interest and in long-term development, and they shouldn't be because they don't mean as much uh, as the impact that they generate. Mm. So that is a moment in which people could start on a downward spiral about their perception and understanding of their sport, and therefore yeah. as a coach or as a leader, as an influencer, or as a parent figure – they're, they're enormously powerful in, in that sense. And so respecting those crunch conversations and taking real care and deliberate thought over how they, how they land and how they're received. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it probably varies depending on where that selection occurs in the pathway, but particularly in early stages of development where the the power of that significant uh, person, the coach, the parent is so powerful in the way that the young, the child athlete thinks about their engagement in sport. Um, we probably have very powerful influencing agents there with the parents and coaches that maybe aren't as powerful in adolescence because of what, you know, what's occurring in adolescence and individual development. We know that they're powerful in uh, childhood and, and youth. Mm. And I, I was struck by the book about how it's grounded in the history of science and mm -hmm. references to some of the forefathers of the scientific process in itself, Galileo, Darwin, and Galton itself. Um, I, I love that aspect of it. So it's right up my street. So you've got what you've got one average reader there at least. But um, but there was a, f a phrase in there about Galton's Galton's motivation originally being around social improvement 
And mm. I, I wasn't quite clear if it was down the path of, you know, I guess abuse of what Charles Darwin was was uh, surfacing around evolution, and which ultimately led to quite a dark ethics of eugenics and so on. But I guess the, at least the motivation behind social improvement by lifting up the standard, the ex- allowing people who've got exceptional abilities to flourish seems to be part of the spirit of, of your book too. Yeah, that's an interesting um, pickup. I, it certainly wasn't intentional that way, but I think you could, you know, the, the talent systems that we have at the moment are very sort of eugenic in the way that they're mm. framed. The idea that we know what the indicators of of positive development are, and so we're going to select people with those indicators, which is very similar to Galton's argument around social improvement is let's look at what the aristocracy and the uh, high achievers in the population did. And we'll use those as indicators for social improvement. I think the flaw in both of those arguments is it looks at that from too simplistic a perspective, right? I think if we've learned anything over the last 40 or 50 years of complexity science is that the interaction between all of these variables at an individual level, but also at a population level is so complicated, almost impossible to capture in a single model that if you embrace that side of the equation, which is we have this amazing society that has produced, uh, you know, fantastic things, but it's done it through this complicated web of interactions that's almost impossible to understand. You'd move away from this kind of perspective that there are simple indicators that we can look at in childhood and make some kind of long-term prediction about um, likelihood of success. Mm. I think that's where I would say I land in terms of athlete development, which is kind of pie in the sky idea because we still have coaches on the ground with a, you know, working in a system where you could believe that, but still be forced by the system to make selections early because the resources aren't there to keep everyone. Um, Again, I think a lot of coaches know this and are uncomfortable with the fact that they have to make selections and they're, the the reality is that that's imposed on them by the system environmentally is there anything that coaches can do to to support talent growth so you've talked about the crunch conversations you've talked about being more open to some of the non-physical uh holistic psychosocial um attitudinal approaches and so widening the variable set and increasing validity so you're able to make better decisions but environmentally for coaches to 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 support athletes maybe maybe even make some of those crunch conversations a little bit easier but yeah. also allow people to grow again i think it's um you know depending on the phase of development that we're talking about um i think one of the elements in the book that i talk about is the the reality that um you know there's a universal model of human motivation and as long as you've got an environment that meets one or a combination of basic needs that we have competence is one it's probably the one that we focus on the most in high performance sport but that's only one of our basic needs there's autonomy uh being in control of our own lives and then there's connection 
Um, so we can have an environment that meets any of those needs. And if we do that, we're going to create an environment where people like to be participating in it. Uh, if we do that, we're more likely to keep people engaged. And so they could be there for our elite performers driven by competence to compete against. They'll be there for us to have a system that has a number of athletes necessary for funding, for um, the parent engagement, all of those kinds of things will happen. And so for me, I think that's the environment that we want to promote. And so for coaches, especially coaches early in the pathway, are you focusing on different needs other than competence? Because the competence people will stay because sport is a primarily a competence and competition-based environment. Are you meeting other needs, um, connection, giving them some perceptions of autonomy, those types of things? It's interesting because I I expect that the combination of those things shifts as we move higher in the pathway that competence becomes almost the overwhelming reason that people are there. But by that point, you've probably removed anybody who is motivated by other things. It's again, you've homogeneous uh, population at that point. It's the only the people that are interested in high competence are there at the end of the pathway. Um, but if we just focus on competence, we undermine the striving and the engagement of those people that are necessary at early stages of the pathway. Mm. Yeah, something that connectedness and that that buy-in, the community of, as a social motivator for for you to be there and um, to contribute to to be respected uh, by your peers. Those are strong motivators to to continue through the hard times, but also to, um, to flourish. Yeah. And the reality that, um, that sport isn't a single thing that, mm. uh, you know, people that want connection are probably more likely to seek out team-based activities or, um, you know, group-based activities and people that are less interested in that and more interested in competence are maybe more likely to seek out individual sports yeah. um let's pay attention to those kind of nuances as well yeah uh, joe i'm really appreciative of the conversation it's been fascinating for me and, and i think um what i really took from the book was how grounded the work is that you've produced um how you can see the origins of of uh, of talent as a concept that we're stuck with now that that has its origins probably a couple of hundred years ago and maybe further back and um, and that lifts up for me quite a philosophical question as to a, well we don't necessarily need to adhere to that uh, you know we we it's a, it's a bit like us sticking nine to nine to five post pandemic when that nine to five was grounded in the industrial revolution it, it, to, to let machines work it it's got that same spirit of well we could mix this up and it's probably not going to be worse. It's probably going to be better. <laughs> so um, it was an erudite read, and I'm really appreciative of of the contribution. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And it's always nice to get the feedback from people that are actually in the system doing these kinds of uh, these kinds of things. I think you're right. You know, the, the thing that we're working on now, and I don't know that we're smart enough to actually get our heads wrapped around it, is that 
the system that we have now was created out of necessity, right? It was as the sport changed and as high performance athlete development changed, we had to create stop gaps that allowed us to manage the system. If we were to, de- to design a system that was knowing what we know now to design the perfect system for athlete development, it would look fundamentally different than the one that we have. And I don't know how we make that shift. Um, but, you know, having great conversations like this, I think, are a good place to start. Yeah, well, there's some interesting challenges for for some coaches to to take it on. And I think that spirit of of testing and learning and maybe some small experiments, short, medium, longer term about within within some risk parameters so that they're not spending the CEO's money wildly, that they'll, they're actually protecting talent, but looking at tangible ways to to help them move forward whether it is physical psychological or or sociological development i think that that is warranted mainly because ultimately if they're going to keep just going to keep repeating all the clubs are going to, and do, doing the same thing no one's going to really get a competitive advantage as you say this is part of the pitch isn't it you can get an opportunity to get ahead you can get more return on investment which appeals to shareholders approach which appeals to ceos of taking that uh, that step sure yeah so it's interesting that we're seeing some evidence of this in uh, some examples in uh, mainstream sports so the rugby football union i talk about in the book um the more interesting one for me is what we see in the paralympic system where uh, they've tried to learn as much as they can from able-bodied mainstream sport to design a better system for the development of paralympic athletes and so they're not constrained by these decades and decades of tradition uh they're looking at well what's the what can the evidence tell us for the best environment and we're seeing uh amazing things happen in that system yeah fantastic well we all need to watch this space a little bit it seems like this is such a big opportunity for for so many people so a burgeoning area that's probably just stood still for quite a long time um that's that that tyranny that you speak of has just tied people up in knots that they're doing the same old things over and over again and getting the same type of output so um thank you so much for the conversation joe i've really appreciated it and um all the coaches that are listening get get the book (laughs) thank you uh i really enjoyed the conversation thanks steve brilliant great Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Now we've got plenty more to come. So if you'd like to support and champion us, then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you tune in. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. So in the meantime, have a great week.